From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Lexi Harvey is away again this month, so you're stuck with me again. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is John Parrish and Aldous Harding.
Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, head to dirty-spoon.com. When I was about five years old, I was diagnosed with hypoglycemia. At the time, that was an unusually young age to be diagnosed with something like that because they rarely did serious blood testing on a child that was so tiny. But my mother knew there was something wrong and insisted on knowing what it was. So the doctors tested me, and sure enough, they caught my hypoglycemia long before it had the chance to morph into something worse. My case wasn't severe enough to require insulin shots, but to keep it from getting that bad, my family had to strictly monitor what I ate. My case was strange in that if I consumed almost any sugar at all, it would send me into a tailspin, so I quickly adapted to eating high-protein foods and saying no to desserts and sweet treats. At first, it was hard for tiny me to understand why I couldn't have cake at my friend's birthday party like everyone else, but what I still remember to this day and have always been grateful for is how other kids rallied around me to make sure I didn't eat sugar. I still remember a kid in first grade when snacks were being passed around saying, Jonathan can't have any sugar. Is there anything for him? Drastically shifting diets is incredibly difficult at any age, let alone when you're a child whose tastes are still developing. Author Debbie Lewis learned about this firsthand when her child received a diagnosis that required drastic dietary change. Here's Michelle Gentile reading an excerpt from Debbie Lewis's debut novel, Kitchen Medicine. To begin, I immediately would remove dairy, soy, eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, and wheat from Sammy's already vegetarian diet. After six weeks, she would have another endoscopy and biopsy to see if the inflammation and presence of eosinophils had gone away. If they had, we'd choose one of those foods and add it back to her diet. Then we would wait another six weeks while she ate that food and do another endoscopy. This would repeat with all of those foods until we found all the foods that her body saw as adversarial. It could be just one food or three or all of them. If that was the case, we'd have to consider either removing corn from her diet and trying again or giving up and attempting one of the other options, strong drugs or the elimination of all food from her diet to be replaced by an unabashedly foul-tasting prescription formula, possibly given through a feeding tube. To say that I was floored by the elimination of two-thirds of our diet, just as I was beginning to love cooking, is an understatement. David and I had decided we would not eat differently from Sammy when we were together. Not for the first time in her life, Sammy's health challenges would guide our mealtimes. The first thing I had to do was look in our cabinets and figure out what in the world we were going to eat. Everything seemed to be marked with a red circle and a diagonal line. No. No to pasta. No to Sammy's favorite macaroni and cheese in a box. No to soy milk, the only milk she ever drank. No to tofu. No to seitan. No to fake chicken nuggets. No to almost every cereal she liked. No to pizza. No, no, no. Everything in my cabinet suddenly looked like poison. 
I sat on my kitchen floor while Ronnie and Sammy, ages four and seven, were at day camp and preschool just blocks away, and I wept. How would I feed her? As a child, I had experienced food as charged with all kinds of emotional value. I had memories of my mother's continual self-deprivation, her mantra humming in my teenage ears like background music, I'm not having any, I'm being good. I'd gone through phases when I associated food with weakness and assigned every food a score based on some imaginary scale that took into account my level of activity that day, my desire to change my body, and my willpower. In trying to raise my own daughters differently, I'd fought hard for the right to eat according to internal body cues and desires, despite Sammy's seemingly non-existent appetite. How could this way of living stand up to the path we were about to take? On the day that I cradled my head in my hands on the kitchen floor after Sammy's diagnosis, I saw all that effort endangered. I didn't know how I could maintain my all food is good food for different reasons attitude while saying no to so many things. I lay there on the floor and stared at the opened cabinets above me, half wishing they'd simply peel away from the wall and crush me beneath them so that I would not have to solve this problem on my own. That moment, I saw the can of chickpeas on one of the pull-out drawers of my pantry cabinet. Chickpeas are actually okay, I thought. Without giving myself time to think, I turned to a fresh page in the notebook I'd started for this diet and wrote yes at the top of the page, and then chickpeas on the first line. I stood up and pulled out the drawer. Almost all the food in cans, I realized, would be fine for Sammy. I started writing things down. Tomatoes, black beans, cannellini beans, vegetable broth, olives, pumpkin, artichoke hearts. I removed the cans of Chinese seitan, made entirely of wheat, and put them in a box on the counter behind me. That became the land of no that week, but for the moment I turned my back on it and faced the cabinet again. I pulled out the top drawer where my spices lived and added to the list. All the spices, olive oil, vegetable oil, Immediately, I knew how I would tell Ronnie and Sammy what was about to happen. I wrote furiously as I cataloged the list of yes foods. Fruity pebbles, cocoa pebbles, dum-dums, lollipops, Smarties candy. I opened the baking cabinet, the hardest part. Almost everything went behind me into the land of no, but there were still a few things left behind. Cornstarch, baking powder, baking soda, powdered sugar, regular sugar, corn syrup, tapioca, Jello, cocoa powder, vanilla extract, peppermint extract, lemon extract, tahini. Further to the left, another cabinet door revealed staples I'd forgotten about. White rice, brown rice, dried beans, lentils, oats, oat bran, papadums. More things went to the land of no, but my pantry was far from empty. In the fridge, I compartmentalized each shelf into yes and no, moving fruits and vegetables to one side and milk, cheese, and eggs to the other. I wrote in my notebook all the vegetables, all the fruits, and further down, for the benefit of the children, I added the details of their own favorites. Bananas, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, cantaloupe, watermelon, apples, pears, mangoes, peaches, nectarines, pineapple, plums, apricots, broccoli, peas, corn, spinach, arugula, basil, carrots, sweet potatoes, potatoes, beets, butternut squash, green beans, asparagus. There was food left in the house after all, and I hadn't even gone to the grocery store to investigate alternatives. 
That night, we broke the news to Ronnie and Sammy, taking turns reading from the list of yes foods. I snuck Ronnie back downstairs after we'd taken Sammy to bed and talked to her about the secret box of snacks I planned to keep hidden away for her to take to school in the fall so she didn't have to eat the same thing Sammy ate and promised we'd make plans for her to go to friends' houses to eat pizza and noodles there. I spent days and days after that trying to craft meals that looked at least a little familiar and to learn techniques for baking vegan, gluten-free, and nut-free. I learned from my friend Christine how to make basmati rice without measuring anything. My mother-in-law and sister-in-law showed up at my house with bag after bag of discoveries from their local health food stores. And a friend of a friend with celiac disease told me about the latest allergen-free baking mixes. But the food that made the biggest difference, again, came from my history. More than five years before, I'd organized a mother blessing ceremony, also known sometimes as a blessing way ceremony for one of my closest friends. Andrea, my neighbor across the courtyard from me before we'd moved, was due shortly thereafter with her second child, a daughter. Surrounded by a small group of powerful, loving women, Andrea and her still gestating daughter were touched by healing hands and given tokens of energy and affection in the form of beads for a bracelet Andrea could use as a focus during labor. Midway through the evening, we gathered in the kitchen of the host, Andrea's friend Jennifer, for food and drink. She bustled around in front of the stove and returned with a steaming ceramic bowl of refried black beans smelling strongly of garlic. We all slathered crunchy, oversized tortilla chips called tostadas with the savory beans, and I knew that, perhaps in no small part due to the circumstances, heavy with community and women's energy, I'd fallen in love with the food. It was salty and crunchy, savory with an earthy flavor that melded beautifully with the oil Jennifer had drizzled into the pot. On the table in the center of the kitchen were bowls of sliced raw onion, chunks of avocado, and shredded cheese, but I happily ate mine with just beans and tostada, helping after helping, the simple meal filling me in the warm kitchen. After Sammy's diagnosis with EOE all those years later, I was standing tearfully in front of a stack of tortillas in the grocery store and reading shared equipment warnings that disqualified even the corn tortillas. Despondent, I looked up to see tostadas on the top shelf. I remembered the heady lushness and intensity in the room during the blessing way ceremony, crowded with women brushing Andrea's hair, massaging lotion into her hands, singing and chanting to welcome her baby, and then emerging into the kitchen where silky beans and spicy garlic filled a hunger I hadn't even realized I was feeling. Remembering it all, I reached up to look at the bag of crunchy tostadas. Contains corn, salt, lime. All acceptable with no warnings of shared equipment with any of our forbidden foods. Corn tostadas and refried black beans became a go-to dish for my family that year and they have remained a staple ever since. There is no meal as simple and satisfying. We have nearly endless variations to top the beans, sliced avocado, a variety of salsas, chopped mango, corn and tomatoes, olives, cucumber and whatever cheeses were allowed by the medically restrictive diets we've followed. During the year of the six-food elimination diet for eosinophilic esophagitis, it was one of the few meals I could make that would be ready in fewer than 30 minutes. A stack of tostadas fit neatly in a reusable plastic container, and so did a family-sized portion of refried beans. All the accoutrements could be carried along, too, 
The entire meal is even tasty at room temperature, so we dragged it to every public event where food would be served. More importantly for us, this meal does not seem strange to most people. It's easy for each person at our table to customize a serving to their liking, and having this in our family repertoire allowed us to avoid what might have been the worst part of any of these intensely restrictive diets we've had to follow. Isolation. When Andrea's friend showed me how to press fresh garlic cloves into a can of store-bought refried black beans, how to drizzle it with oil and mix it in a pot on the stove, she did so in a kitchen filled with other people steeped in joy and support. She anointed this meal a community affair, and so it remained. Unseen and all I don't 
is a funny subject, particularly when it comes to food. A lot of people love eating foods of their family's culture, and many go on to build successful restaurants around these cuisines. Others try to get as far away from it as possible. For those of us raised in the 80s and 90s in America, it's tricky. It was an era of convenience foods where everything was sold in boxes, cans, or in the freezer section. When I was a kid, my idea of a home-cooked meal was boxed macaroni and cheese, steamed broccoli, and fish sticks. It wasn't till I was in college that I went back to my grandmother's to learn how to make the Appalachian dishes that they loved. Chicken and dumplings, hop and john, cornbread. For many immigrant families, while the foods from home may be comforting, there is a constant struggle with assimilation into one's new environment, and the constant question of how much to give up. Writer Juanita Mance found herself digging through her family's culinary heritage when she tried to teach herself how to make tortillas from scratch. 
I am a half Mexican and half white girl. Growing up, I was never Mexican enough. To white people, when they saw my brown skin, curly dark hair and eyes, I was all Mexican. But to Mexican people, I was clearly more of a white girl. Even my favorite punk song by the LA band X is called White Girl. You see, my first generation mother did not teach me or my sisters Spanish. My mother had her reasons. She was the only brown face in a sea of whites in her Orange County Elementary School picture. As a kid, she had her hands slapped for speaking Spanish in school, and assimilation was what my mother yearned for. So me and my sisters grew up in a household with no Spanish and no tamales. So I was definitely not fitting in with the cholas in my blue-collar neighborhood in Ontario, California in the 1970s. But I so wanted to fit in. I wanted to be part of Latina Chicana culture, and still do. My mom was definitely more of a hamburger helper kind of meal maker when she did cook. You see, in my house, my white Montana-born cowboy father was the cook, not my Mexican mother. My mother did not like to cook because she never learned how. Sadly, her mom, my immigrant Mexican grandmother who I never met, was sick for most of my mother's childhood and died when my mother was only 14. After her mom died, my mother was devastated and was put in a convent where she rebelled and later dropped out of high school to have her first child, David, with her first husband. Her son, David, was born deaf and she was living in Oregon with my father, who she had recently met, when David died in a tragic car accident when he was four, all before me and my two sisters were born. My mother was a waitress and worked two jobs for most of my childhood and was always tired. My father was raised on stout German and English style cuisine and taught himself to cook. He really enjoyed it and kept his can of bacon drippings in a coffee can at the side of the stove, and it was one of his most treasured possessions. My father would make roast beef, chili, hearty stews, Polish sausage, pork chops, and he loved to cook his fat, juicy steaks on the barbecue with a homemade mustard and pickle potato salad. He was also a pro at pancakes. As a kid, I never appreciated all the hard work it took my father to cook for us after a long day of driving trucks and moving furniture at the Mayflower Moving Company. But as an adult, I remember his cooking with fondness. Yes, his vegetables were often overcooked and his turkey on Thanksgiving was dry, but my father made an effort to feed us well, even on a trucker's wage. If he had to work late, My mother would make us dinner, and it was usually something easy like sliced, fried Farmer John hot dogs with crispy potatoes. Don't knock it because it's actually delicious. We would call them our weenie pennies and potatoes and eat them with ketchup. Plus, I was and am a fan of processed food, and my favorite foods during my childhood and teenage years were the boxed ones, such as instant mashed potatoes and Kraft macaroni and cheese. I would come home from school with my sisters and make a pot of the yellow macaroni, adding extra butter, and that would be our snack. I would add lots of black pepper, and me and my sisters would eat the macaroni and cheese while watching the series Chips. In a repetition of history, in my household, I am not the cook, and instead, my dentist-by-day husband Adrian is the master chef. His Argentine heritage serves him well, and he learned how to cook partly by watching his mother. His mom, Orieta, lives with us, and she's almost 90 years old, and obviously she cannot cook like she used to. Yet, I still remember the good old days of going to Adrian's parents' house in the 1990s in West Covina, California, for dinner parties. 
His mom would spend the entire day over the stove and would cook delicious feasts for a crowd of 20 of their friends. Homemade chicken milanese with a fried egg on top, cheese raviolis, and a side of onion and tomato salad, and what the Argentines call Russian potato salad. Orieta always had an innate sense of style and grace, and would be dressed to the nines, and she would set the table with her fancy plates and shiny crystal glasses. I would feel a bit out of place because I was raised drinking out of a McDonald's Hamburglar glass and eating on paper plates while wearing old jeans and a t-shirt. Because of his culinary pedigree passed down from his mother, Adrian is what I call a natural chef. The guy can cook. Sometimes I literally moan while eating his homemade creations, such as roast chicken, smoked baby back ribs, and his own variation on his mom's crispy chicken meal and essay, one with cheese and ham on top. Adrian buys specialty foods and makes homemade salsas and creative culinary creations that rival his mother's, only with more flair. He smokes his meats and recently started growing a window box garden for fresh produce and peppers. And let's just say that it is an understatement to say that I am not a natural cook. I have little or no patience and do not have great coordination and have to squint to read recipes, even with my readers. I would much rather be reading a book or writing a story than standing over a stove. The truth is, I'm almost a horrible cook. I routinely undercook chicken and overcook pork, and I am especially bad at Mexican food because I have no idea how to make tamales, and I use canned enchilada sauce when I do make enchiladas, which is not often. My saving grace and the only reason I am not a horrible cook are my breakfast-making skills. Because of my father's tutoring, I can make a delicious crispy pancake and a mean fried egg. Plus, I just love breakfasts and diner food. After high school, my sister Annie and I worked at a coffee shop in Upland, California called Benji's. After the dog, I think. It could be another reason why I'm not a big fan of cooking, having worked in the restaurant industry for years after high school before finishing college and law school. I liked waitressing, but I hated going home smelling like food and the uniforms que fea. At the coffee shop, our uniforms consisted of peach skirts and light green polos with the forest green apron with the coffee shop's name stenciled in white, which matched our ugly white waitressing shoes. Shoes that were not only hideously expensive and heinous looking, but were mandatory for the non-skid soles. We called them our white witch shoes. Working the graveyard shifts at the coffee shop was fun at times. I loved the way you had to yell out the orders. My favorite was always the term on a shingle, which stood in for hash and eggs. On Graveyard, we served all the kids, who we called the club rats, who loved to order sundaes and milkshakes that we had to make by hand. Just scooping the ice cream out of the overfrozen bins was exhausting. Then you had to add milk and whip the shakes in tall cylinders using a big silver machine, and then we had to finish them off by pouring them in a long, old-fashioned milkshake cup and neatly adding whipped cream and a cherry. Banana splits were the worst. Plus, an order of milkshakes and sundaes could take 15 minutes or more. When you had a full station, there was no time for handmade milkshakes and pretty sundaes. Plus, the club rats never appreciated the hard work it took and usually only left a dollar or two. I started telling the club rats, some of whom wore ridiculous silver and gold lame outfits, that the mixer was broken to avoid the shake earthquake which was what I nicknamed an order of milkshakes that could put you in the waitressing weeds. I often worked the graveyard shift with a sarcastic Puerto Rican girl named Diane, a girl we became fast friends with. 
She was a blonde Puerto Rican and had a huge yellow head of hair, sprayed up with Aquanet like a lion's mane. And she was smart and funny and wasn't scared of anyone. Diane told me in her thick New York accent that the trick to the coffee shop was to get the manager Paul to move you to the breakfast shift, where if you worked the smoking section, you could make a hundred bucks a shift serving all the old, white, rich men that came in and tipped their waitresses large, sometimes leaving five bucks on a single cup of coffee. Diane couldn't work breakfast because she had a husband who worked days and two kids in school, and plus she had her late night regulars and she always got off first often starting during the dinner shift to make up for the graveyard tips. The tables and management liked my fast service and good memory, and I got moved to the breakfast shift quickly. I was always good at multitasking. I loved putting all the plates on my arms. My sister somehow got moved to lunches, which were less profitable, but we would share our shifts. That way we made about the same, trading with each other to make it fair. Back then in the early 1990s, the restaurant industry was especially tough, and the owners never gave us our legally required breaks and made us work the dreaded split shift, which we called the screw-you-over shift, where you worked a lunch and then took a long break and then worked a dinner shift. Food was always a luxury for us in our 20s, and all Annie and I had in our apartment fridge was a loaf of bread, some fruit, salsa, and white rice. We ate salsa and rice for dinner most nights when we weren't working. As a special treat, we would go to Caro's to eat their special $2 breakfast one day a week. And we would down their mugs of coffee and always tip to fiver. But when on shift, the line cooks would usually slip me a leftover chicken finger and some fries if they knew we were hungry. Which was often, because we were always hungry. Preferring to spend our money on an outfit for club night or for alcohol to drink in the car at the club. And as backup, there was always the burnt toast which they allowed us to have. Sometimes I would burn it on purpose. A girl's got to eat. To this day, I love me some over-toasted burnt toast drenched with butter. At the restaurant, we'd slather it with a barbecue brush dipped in cheap margarine. Once, and this is embarrassing to admit, I even committed the cardinal restaurant sin of taking home abandoned food. I couldn't resist it because I was hungover and famished, and it was a huge roast chicken dinner that the table barely picked up. I lied and told everyone that I was taking it home for my non-existent cat, but I gnawed the bones clean that night. Back to my tortilla-making experiment. It all started because the only thing I know I can cook better than Adrian is homemade beans. It's because they're so easy and I can leave them on a stove. I was bragging about my beans one day when Adrian suggested that I try to make homemade tortillas to go with my beans. At first, I hesitated, but then thought, why not? How hard could it be? Knowing my mother had no idea how to make homemade tortillas, I started researching recipes on the internet. I found a recipe for the dough and collected the ingredients. It said to have the true homemade flavor, you should use lard. Lard? As in Crisco? Where would I get lard? I decided the Mexican market surely would have it, and they did. After coming home from the market, I made the dough right after starting my beans. The trick to my beans is soaking them for at least a few hours, and preferably multiple hours, and I place them in a bowl of water the night before. After rinsing out my pinto beans, I put them in a boiling pot of water with powdered garlic, bay leaf, crushed fresh garlic, along with pieces of red onion and a piece of both raw bacon and jalapeno for flavor. Back to the tortillas. I combined two tablespoons of lard with two tablespoons of baking powder and one teaspoon of salt, along with four cups of flour and a cup and a half of water. 
I kneaded the dough and rolled the dough into small balls and let them rest. It all seemed to be going okay until I started trying to roll them out. The dough kept sticking to the rolling pin. The video said nothing about this. Maybe it was too warm in the kitchen. Getting frustrated and remembering why cooking was so difficult for me, I put the dough back in one big piece and re-kneaded and rolled out the balls again. Sweat dripped down my face as I put them in the fridge. I decided to put flour on the island to help control the stickiness, and then I waited for the tortilla balls to cool while listening to some David Bowie for inspiration. After 30 minutes, I rolled out the cool dough, but noticed that the dough wasn't thin enough and had a thick, almost spongy quality. Plus, I was covered in flour, and I had put too much flour on the island. Feeling a little bit like Lucille Ball, I made out a face and let out a wah! Not giving up and trying to stay positive, I kept rolling. When I finished, I noticed my tortillas were misshapen. They kind of looked like pita bread, not tortillas. But I cooked them anyway, and I got them nice and crispy. It almost reminded me of making pancakes. But when I tasted one, I noted the tortillas didn't just look like pita bread, they also tasted like pita bread too. When Adrian got home, he laughed aloud when he saw my sad attempt at tortillas, but he tried to be nice while agreeing that they had an odd texture. And he had the nerve to say in his chef voice that I probably should have used a tortilla press. Fed up, I just grunted at him as I threw the tortillas in the trash and warmed up my beans, which were perfectly cooked, and then I added butter like all white girls should. That was my one and only time making homemade flour tortillas. Adrian bought me a tortilla press as a gift, but I told him it was just too much pressure, pun intended, and that I would prefer to buy my tortillas homemade at the Mexican Northgate Market, and that I might write a story about it instead. So I did. Margarita Gonzalez reading Juanita Mance's story, A Portrait of Pocha Trying to Make Homemade Tortillas. You can find it and all of our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
sanctuary for people that have recently served jail time. And for good reason. It's a flexible job that just about anyone can learn to do, and as a result, it has the reputation for being a motley crew of hardworking people who function as a team. In the best cases, it's a great place to readjust to life back on the outside. Seattle writer Carolyn Cohen got a front row seat for dozens making this transition. Here's Laura Hackett reading Carolyn Cohen's story, interviewing for the culinary workforce. A shy old man sits across the table from me wearing a faded flannel shirt and jeans. He resembles a workhorn farmer, anxious in a big city. 
I begin the practice job interview with the standard prompt. Thank you for coming in today. Can you tell me about yourself? Abruptly, his pale cheeks flush pink and his eyes tear up. He chokes, struggling to speak. I've been in prison for 30 years and my last job interview was in the 1970s. What am I supposed to say to you? He is clearly terrified of the interview and of me. That was my first day as a volunteer for a program providing culinary skills to people re-entering the workforce. Most have experienced a combination of homelessness, incarceration, and substance abuse disorder. Participants receive social supports and hands-on kitchen skills training. Near the end of the program, they are paired with volunteers to practice applying for jobs. These mock interview sessions are held mid-mornings in the otherwise empty restaurant where the program is located. Still wearing their aprons, they emerge from the glassed-in kitchen and are assigned to sit with a volunteer at tables preset for lunchtime opening. Each one hands over a draft resume, which often shows multi-year gaps in employment. In conversation, these trainees sometimes disclose that the gaps are due to homelessness or drug issues. Often the resume lists several years of work, quote, for the state, in the town where the prison is located, code for incarceration. Most hope to find work as a dishwasher or as a prep or line cook. Several share aspirations to open their own coffee shop or restaurant one day. I am now seasoned in the interviewer role, yet still rarely untouched by the interactions. There are some humorous moments. For example, one participant, a former felon, transposed letters on his resume, describing his previous position as a perp cook instead of prep cook. A well-spoken woman in her 40s with an impressive resume in healthcare asks to go off the record. She confides how she loved her years of working in a nursing home, but after injuring her back lifting a patient, she was prescribed opioids and spiraled to a heroin addiction, a felony conviction in prison time. Her drug-related felony prohibits her from working in healthcare. Nursing was her passion, but that option will never be open again. Now she is training for a career in the restaurant industry. She requests that we practice as though she were applying for an entry-level opening as a dishwasher. Sitting with her, my heart tightens with outrage at the travesty of opioid marketing and prescription abuses and the resulting damage to innocent lives, including hers. I find myself initially discounting a middle-aged woman with missing front teeth, pale blue eyes outlined with thick, raccoon-like eyeliner, topped with electric blue eyeshadow and hair dyed a shockingly unattractive shade of maroon. She hands over a resume demonstrating an impressive job history. She is articulate and knowledgeable about all aspects of the kitchen. A great hire. I wonder if prospective employees will see beyond her appearance, but I don't feel comfortable saying anything. This is the one that stays with me. A dignified man in his 50s, dressed in a button-down plaid shirt, sits across from me poised and calm at the two-person table. We look like colleagues having lunch. I begin with the usual opening query. Tell me about yourself. Immediately, his demeanor transforms to panic and he stammers. What do you want me to say? I respond reassuringly. Let's stay in the mock interview mode. Just give it a try. But he blurts out, I can't answer that. I move on to another question. What would you do if you unexpectedly were going to be late or absent from work? He's able to respond. We finish practicing and it's time to debrief. I ask if we should work on a response to tell me about yourself. And he replies, I don't know how to answer that kind of question. I was in prison for 15 years and I've been out for 80 days. I am not used to having anyone take an interest in me. 
His response shakes me and I take a deep breath. We work on his elevator speech and interview appropriate responses in case he is asked about the 15-year gap in his resume. We identify transferable skills. Reading his expression and body language, I sense a shift. He seems to feel a level of comfort with me and would like to explain what sent him to prison. But volunteers are only allocated 30 minutes. The program days are tightly scheduled and he is required to return to the kitchen training in a few minutes. We stand, shake hands, and he walks away. Our relationship is over. In my mind's eye, I still see the expression on his face when he told me he wasn't used to someone caring about him. I would like to think that at his first job interview, he confidently answered the question, tell me about yourself. But this volunteer position isn't structured for follow-up. I wish it was. I will never know how it all turned out for him. Years later, I still wonder. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters, or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, head to dirty-spoon.com. Blood I'll go run If no justice no come Blood I'll go run If no justice no come Fight, fight, fight production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Echamedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Miriam Papano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. 
Music in this episode by John Parrish and Aldous Harding, James Blake, Al Mene, Shabason and Govich, Sam Evian, Iguana Death Cult, Dave Okomu, Seven Generations, Wesley Joseph, Eska, and the Blue Dot Sessions. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I handle the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and write some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume, right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. (laughs) 